This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, there's a new dilemma dividing the country. Is it worth risking the health and potentially the lives of Americans in order to jumpstart our paralyzed economy? With signs that social distancing and mitigation are slowing the rate of new cases, the Trump administration issued new guidelines this week to allow some states to start loosening restrictions on residents. But with a death toll of over 34,000 and rising, the U.S. has recorded close to three-quarters of a million cases so far. Those stark statistics stand in the way of the push to reopen businesses. The back-to-work argument has its own set of jaw-dropping statistics. 13% of the labor force is out of work. Lines at food banks are getting longer. And as for small businesses looking for loan assistance from Congress's record financial bailout, that money has run out. That struggle is dividing America even further. How does this situation get worse? It get worse quickly if you politicize all that emotion. We cannot go there. Last week, President Trump said he had full authority when it came to reopening the country. The president of the United States calls the shots. If we weren't Three days later, he told governors, it's every state for itself. You're going to call your own shots. Then on Friday, he urged residents in three states, all with Democratic governors, to take matters into their own hands. As for governors, they're desperate for financial aid and a national testing plan from the federal government. Will they get the help they need? We'll talk with Republican Governor Charlie Baker of Massachusetts. Plus, take a look at the critical role testing plays in reopening the country for business with the administration's coronavirus coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks. We'll also talk with former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. As America continues to suffer in these troubling times, it's hard to find the right words to begin this broadcast. Today, we thought we'd borrow from one of the country's most prolific writers, Wall Street Journal columnist Peggy Noonan, who wrote yesterday that this is a never-before-seen level of national economic calamity. History doesn't get bigger than this. Sobering words, but true. First up this morning is CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman. He's in Atlanta. Mark? Good morning, Margaret. And now comes the tricky part, reversing the great American lockdown. It's every governor's call to make in this historic health crisis. But as job losses mount, so does the pressure to reopen America. Open our states! We want It's America's corona revolt. Protesters storming the gates of power. Refuse to comply. Backlash in Virginia, in Texas, in California. They've lost jobs. They're fed up with stay-at-home orders. They worry America in lockdown teeters on a second Great Depression. 22 million jobs lost in four weeks. You can't keep healthy people locked in their houses and watch the economy just go down. 
You can't do it. Michigan's torn between dollar signs and vital signs. It ranks third nationally in COVID-19 deaths, fifth in overall cases, and no state has bled more jobs. Almost one in four workers in the last four weeks. By May 1st, Governor Gretchen Whitmer promises to review her stay-home restrictions. I'm frustrated, too. None of us wants to be here in this moment. But lifting those restrictions prematurely could spread the virus. South Dakota is one of seven states without a stay-home mandate. This now-closed pork processing plant became America's hottest spot for the virus. 769 related cases. In this county, cases nearly tripled in one week. More than 100 mayors pleaded with the governor for a stay-home order. I'm not going to do that at that time, at this time. I don't believe it's appropriate. Consider the 43 states with stay-at-home orders. 23 have restrictions that extend to May 1st. The 20 others will continue into May or indefinitely. Phasing out restrictions will vary by state. One major issue, testing. Who's safe to be around? And nothing will return soon to the way it was, like Saturday's commencement at the Air Force Academy. Graduates sitting apart, the stadium empty. But they celebrated progress. The event wasn't canceled. America's reopened economy will have winners and many losers. And thousands of small businesses were counting on the government's loan program. And now it has run out of money. Margaret? Mark Strassman, thank you. We want to go now to CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer in London. Margaret, from China to Denmark, we are seeing governments around the world start to ease restrictions as they think they have the virus under control. But there are other countries which were slower to react that are getting hammered, notably Russia. At midnight in Moscow's cathedral, the great bell tolled to mark Orthodox Easter. But it was a solemn service. The Kremlin's strict lockdown, only imposed in early April, came too late. The line of ambulances waiting to get patients into the hospital tells a grim story. 10,000 confirmed new cases this weekend alone. By contrast, Greeks, who also celebrated Orthodox Easter from the safety of their living rooms, are giving thanks. Swift government action there achieved some of the lowest infection and death rates in Europe. Iran's outbreak, one of the most severe anywhere, swamped its hospitals. This week, the powerful Revolutionary Guards claimed they'd invented a magnetic device to detect the virus at 100 yards. Health officials quickly poured cold water on the idea, but it left Iranians weary, worried, and with even less confidence in their government. And finally, a story to warm hearts everywhere. World War II veteran Captain Tom Moore set out to mark his 100th birthday by crossing his garden a 100 times. His goal, to raise $1,200 for British health charities. Donations poured in. The sun will shine on you again and the clouds will go away. By the time Captain Tom was finished with a military honor guard... Inches to go, and there he is. ...he'd raised more than $16 million. Well done. Here in the UK, we've had our fairly comprehensive lockdown extended until at least the 7th of May. But here and there across Europe, governments are taking the first tentative steps to reopen businesses, everything from construction sites and bookshops to hairdressers. Margaret? Liz Palmer in London. Thanks. CBS News foreign correspondent Ramey Innocencio has been reporting on this story from Asia since the first cases in Wuhan. He reports now from Tokyo. On China's border with Russia, this new 600-bed hospital is prepped for a surge of imported cases. 90% of China's infections have been citizens returning home from abroad, many through this now-locked-down border town of Suifenhe. U.S. political pressure on China is also rising. President Trump saying he'll freeze funding to the World Health Organization. We're paying them more than 10 times more than China, and they are very, very China-centric. WHO is reviewing the impact of our work of any withdrawal of U.S. funding. In terms of a second surge, 
Are you nervous right now? I am nervous. Dr. Jerome Kim is a leading epidemiologist in South Korea. It's like um, putting out a fire. There are going to be embers that are glowing or smoking. You want to stamp those out before the fire starts again. With drive-through testing and a decisive government, South Korea has been praised as the global gold standard. Social distancing at the polls for parliamentary elections was the norm Wednesday, with temperature checks, hand sanitizer, and plastic gloves all part of the process. The ruling party won an historic majority for flattening Korea's infection curve. Testing and you know, isolation made the response better. Much the opposite in Japan, where Tokyo's busy streets have gone quiet. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe declared the whole nation under a state of emergency Thursday, one day after Japan's health ministry warned 400,000 people could die with no mitigation. Japan is now scrambling to expand testing with drive through facilities like in South Korea. Contact tracing is a major concern, too. Here in the capital, more than 70% of all infections are of unknown origin. Margaret? Ramey and Asensio in Tokyo. Thank you. We turn now to Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Dr. Burks, good morning to you and thank you for making time for us. Good morning. Here in the U.S., what is the next area that you are concerned about? We watch every single metro county in a very granular, granular way because you have to look at it that way. We're a series of small epidemics across the United States. We're still very much focused on Boston and across Massachusetts, where the epidemics continue to spread across Massachusetts as well as in Boston. And we're watching very closely Chicago. And then we watch every single outbreak that occurs in, in different states around the, around the United States, including the most recent one in Ohio. Here in Washington, uh, there are projections that the virus couldn't peak until June. Obviously, this, this is the heart of the nation's government. So what is your projection for what the impact here will be? You know, it's very interesting, as I, I described, we're a series of independent curves. Um, so obviously, we all know that the New York metro area had had the most cases, the most explosive experience with the virus. And then we look to Seattle that has been containing the virus and contact tracing and really finding a series of small outbreaks. Having that first nursing home outbreak really helped them really put in public health measures that that's kept their curve very low. And so when the curves are low, it's much more difficult to predict when the curves are going to fully decline. And so we're learning a lot about, it's easier actually in explosive epidemics when you look at New Orleans who went up very high and quickly back down. And we're trying to learn from each of the areas in the country so we can do the prediction that you're asking for. All right. We'll watch for that. Uh, but policy-wise, Doctor, why isn't there a national strategy for both testing and tracing? Why not provide those guidelines to governors? So we did do that through the new guidelines. Um, so, And it clearly shows that there are three ways we want to monitor this virus community by community. The first way is really understanding ER visit and the symptoms associated with COVID-19. And we're tracking and tracing those every day all across the country. The second way is really understanding influenza-like illness and converting that entire surveillance program and monitoring program to COVID-like illness, which we can throughout the summer months because we don't have flu. And the third critical leg with those other two legs is testing. But testing needs to be focused critically where you start to see early evidence because no test is 100% specific and 100% sensitive. And so if you test and over-test in areas where there isn't virus, you can right. end up with false positives and false negatives. But, but I'm sure you know that governors, including the governor of New York, have said that they need more guidance from the federal government and sourcing for the, completing those tests. Uh, the vice president said today there's about 150,000 tests being uh, conducted right now in the United States. Harvard projects you need 500 to 700,000 a day to reopen by mid-May. How, how long before we get there? 
So I think because you're making national numbers with epidemics that are smaller, each of these epidemics will have a different testing need, and that's what we're calculating now. The numbers originally said that we only needed 700, <clears throat> me, 750,000 tests a week. We've long since passed that. The new number coming from Harvard is the half a million a day. What we're trying to do is look at this in a very data-driven, granular, scientific methodologies to predict community by community the testing that is needed. At the same time, working with every laboratory director across the country that have these multiple platforms to really understand and find solutions for them on their issues related to supplies. Two weeks ago, you said Americans still shouldn't go to the pharmacy or grocery store. You said just the other day, we shouldn't have dinner parties still. Uh, what is the moment that we are in? What is safe? So, again, this has to be looked at as a community by community. And I, I'm trying to really drive Americans to a website that I think is really quite extraordinary. If you go to the Florida Public Health website on COVID, they've been able to show their communities t cases and tests district by district, county by county, zip code by zip code. Zip code. That's the kind of knowledge and power we need to put into the hands of American people so that they can see where the virus is, where the cases are, and make decisions. One thing I've been so impressed with, if you give Americans knowledge, they will translate that into protective actions that protect themselves and their community. And so we have to really get them information in a much more granular way than a national way or even a state way. It needs to be down to the communities so the communities can see what happens in their communities and make decisions with the local and health officials and the state officials, what can be opened and what needs to remain closed. Doctor, scientifically speaking, could this outbreak just be the result of a lab accident? You know, anytime we have a new virus, it's important to figure out its origins. And I think we're still a long way from figuring it out. It took us decades to figure out HIV and Ebola. It's going to take us a while to really map and trace this, this particular virus, map it through its experience in humans, and get the scientific evidence of where this virus originated. We know it originated in China. We just don't know specifically how and where. So you're, it sounds like you're saying it could have been. I don't have an evidence that it was a laboratory accident. I also don't know precisely where it originated. So until we have the concrete evidence, which we struggled with with other pandemics and other zoonotic events, these are zoonotic events. They come from animals into humans. And so figuring that out will be really critical, as well as figuring out could it have happened in the lab. Right now, the general consensus is animal to human. Does the fact that South Korea is starting to see a bit of a resurgence mean that that could happen here in the U.S., that if you get this virus, you are not immune? You know, that's a different question. Um, and we're, that's why these studies that are going on with plasma and giving plasma to sick patients to really see if that antibody confers protective immunity and health to the individual who is sick, as well as really doing studies with vaccines and looking, seeing whether the antibodies that are produced are effective. These are questions that we still have scientifically. I will tell you, in most infectious diseases, um, for, except for HIV, we know that when you get sick and you recover and you develop antibody, that that antibody is often confers immunity. We just don't know if it's its immunity for a month, immunity for six months, immunity for six years. Dr. Burks, thank you for your time. Thank you. We'll be right back with Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We go now to Boston and Massachusetts Republican Governor Charlie Baker. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning. How are you? Very well. And uh, as we just heard from Dr. Burke, she's very concerned about what's happening in your state, which is experiencing such an outbreak right now. Um, 
I want to ask you about how states are working with the federal government, because the president said this week he has the ultimate authority to make the decision to reopen. That same day, you and a number of governors throughout the Northeast announced you're going to come up with your own regional strategy. The White House has now said, okay, you're in charge of it anyhow. Do, Do these mixed messages impact your planning? Do you as a governor need more federal guidance? Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is part of the reason we chose to join that collaborative is there's a tremendous amount of cross-border activity that takes place when there is a functioning economy between and among all those states in the Northeast. Um, We have people who work in those states. We have people who live in those states and work in Massachusetts. Uh, We have tons of companies that do business back and forth. And I think us thinking about this regionally is an important element because I don't want Massachusetts to do something that makes life incredibly complicated for New York or New Jersey or or New Hampshire or Vermont. And I certainly don't want them to do something that unwittingly creates issues and problems in Massachusetts. I think generally the the biggest thing we're interested in guidance uh, from the feds on is a lot of the stuff that comes out of the CDC and the FDA, which we take very seriously, incorporate into our own guidance and our own advisories, and in some cases orders that we issue in Massachusetts. I know that's true for many other states. I also think the other issue that's important from the feds is is they approve and drive a lot of the policy and what ultimately becomes um, sort of the facts on the ground with respect to testing and uh, and treatments. And uh, and as a in a state where there are a number of companies that are deeply invested in uh, either the development of treatments or vaccines or have hospitals that are involved in clinical trials associated with treatments for COVID-19, the federal government's role with respect to treatments is enormously important. And on the testing piece, um, yeah, they fundamentally a have a strategy? huge role to play. For testing? Pardon me? Do you need that national strategy for testing? I think, generally speaking, governors appreciate the fact that the feds have acknowledged that the surge is in different places, in different states at different times. We're in a very different place here in Massachusetts than other states are. We're right in the middle of the surge now. Um, But I certainly believe that the more guidance and and especially the ability to put the foot on the accelerator with respect to advancements in testing, Mm -hmm. uh, everything associated with testing ultimately has to be approved by the CDC and the FDA, as it should be. States shouldn't be making their own decisions on that stuff. Uh, Well, one decision you have made in your state is to launch contact tracing. Um, you're getting that program still up yep. and running. You're doing it with phone calls. You're about to hire about 1,000 people to do it. Explain what the idea is. So uh, there's an organization in Massachusetts called Partners in Health, um, which has been doing uh, work in developing countries around public health for years. And, uh, and they are, in my opinion, kind of the gold standard around contact tracing generally. And they've been doing it in in places where Ebola and Zika become horrible epidemics and outbreaks. And they started talking to us about creating a contact tracing program in Massachusetts. And first of all, it's not theoretical. They've done it before. They know how to do it. Secondly, I absolutely believe that, in Massachusetts anyway, for us to get back on our feet and start thinking about reopening, we have got to have better knowledge and better understanding and support for people who are dealing with this virus and those they've come in close contact with. But why do it the, why do it the old-fashioned way of, of phone calls? Couldn't it happen more quickly if you did it digitally? Well, I certainly think that there's going to be a role for um, a variety of digital interventions to support this. I don't think it's an either-or. I think it's a both-and. But just based on the stuff we've started doing already, there's tremendous value in having conversations with people who are COVID-19 positive not just in terms of uh, who they've been in contact with, but also what it's going to take to help them stay isolated and, you know, manage their way through the the virus themselves. And when we have a 1,000 people working this, and it may be more than that over time, the goal here is to push back on the virus the same way they did in South Korea, to contain it, understand where it is, and control it. And I think it's going to be critical for every state that wants to get open and back to something like a new normal to put some kind of mechanism like this in place. Right now, there is this uh, struggle uh, in Congress and with the White House about how much money and to give to states and if it should be included in this uh, upcoming uh, package. 
Does Massachusetts need more federal funding? I know governors in a bipartisan group said they need about $500 billion in unrestricted aid. Well, the big issue for states is not dissimilar to the one you see for municipalities and other entities, which is if you shut down the economy, you shut down the revenue stream, but that doesn't mean you're no longer in the business of providing health care for people. You're not out of the business of operating correctional facilities. You're not going to get out of the public safety business or the environmental protection business or the transportation business. Um, but I think every state in the country is struggling with what the hit to their economy uh, has done to their balance sheet and to their budgets. And if the feds are interested in sort of reopening the economy, and they've certainly talked yeah. a lot about the importance of stimulating uh, the economy going forward, for states to be able to support that initiative, right. obviously it's important for the feds to support our efforts to, to well, fund the stuff we do. If we're laying yeah. off tens of thousands of people at exactly the time when they want to reopen the economy... Uh, we're going to be swimming against the exactly. uh, the current they're trying to create. We'll be watching for that, Governor. Thank you for your time. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Joining us now to help us educate our viewers about new COVID-19 developments is former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He joins us from his home in Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, I'm wondering, we heard from Dr. Burks, and then we heard from the governor of Massachusetts. I know you've also been advising him. Uh, there's a lot of concern about Boston and Chicago, Burks said. Uh, what are the other areas of the country that you still see as very worrisome? Well, I think when you look at the southeast and the Sun Belt, you still need to be worried. You haven't seen cases really spike in Texas or Georgia. In fact, it looks like cases are slowing there. But there's parts of those states that are hot spots counties that are moving very quickly. Parts of the panhandle in Florida, you see cases growing very quickly. So the parts of the country that were later to enter their epidemic portion of this crisis, I think still are going to come out of it later, and you still have to be concerned about that. And in really any part of the country is vulnerable, even rural parts of the country. So that was South Dakota. Once a case gets into a situation where you have people tightly packed indoors, it can spread very quickly. You see these super spreader situations, as you saw in South Dakota. So I don't think anyone's out of the woods right now. But you are seeing some governors start talking about and opening up things like beaches in Florida, parts of that state. Um, you heard Dr. Burke say that there is, in fact, a national strategy from, for testing. Uh, do you think that strategy is adequate? Well, look, I think it's a loose strategy. Um, I think states are largely on their own trying to get testing resources into their states. And I think one of the things they should be doing right now is trying to work together, at least on a regional basis, to move around samples to take advantage of capacity for testing that exists in a regional um, location within the country. Where we need a national strategy, first and foremost, is on the testing supply chain. So all the cheap, low-commodity components that go into testing, like the swabs and the reagents, and we've been talking about this for weeks now, those are all in short supply. We don't have shortages of them, but whatever gets produced is getting consumed because it's a global supply chain that testing sites are tugging on. And so if you had the government more engaged in trying to manage that supply chain, getting supplies to the states that need it most, and trying to look for ways to increase manufacturing at a national level, that could help the states get the supplies they need. It's not the testing platforms, per se, that are in short supply. A lot of states have testing capacity within the states. It's the components to run those tests that they're having trouble getting their hands on. Well, and, and Dr. Burke said that there is an attempt to try to help the states. Uh, what's missing there? What kind of coordination does there need to be between states and labs and the federal government? Well, I think the federal government has more capacity to try to tug on that global supply chain, get more supplies into the country while other countries are competing for the same supplies, and also look at how we ramp up manufacturing of these these components. These are low commodity components. There are a lot of plastic parts that could be 3D printed. There might be ways to increase manufacturing in the United States. It's something that we should be looking at trying to do if we can bring on manufacturing sites that can make some of these things here domestically, both yeah. in the near term and the long term. 
Right now, the swing capacity in the market, if we're going to see dramatic increases in capacity coming into the market in May and June, it's going to be from new systems coming into the market, the point-of-care uh, diagnostic systems like the Abbott machine that we've seen or the Cephe Gene Expert. Those companies are probably going to increase their supply of the machines that they have available. And there's a couple of other companies awaiting approval with the FDA or authorization to come into the market. And that will probably, probably be the inflection point if we're likely to see one, at least in May and June. You said employers should look at things like on-site testing before their employees return to work. Do you think that's something that governors should mandate companies to have? What corporation is going to spend the money unless they're required to do so? Right. I don't think it should be a mandate because there's a lot of corporations that are going to have difficulty bringing this on site. I think where the government can play a role is helping to subsidize these activities in the near term so that we can make sure it's available not just to white-collar jobs and offices, but also shop floors and factories where there's actually more risk to employees because they can't naturally social distance or helping small businesses come together and put machines in local communities because they're going to have a hard time doing this. You're going to see a lot of office-based jobs actually bring testing on site. I'm talking to a lot of companies that are actively working on this right now. And you're going to see provider groups step in to provide those facilities to companies. And what I worry about is it's not going to be available to all employees and employees who are most at risk of contracting COVID at work because they can't naturally social distance are the ones who aren't going to have access to these facilities. And so I think states have a role to play in helping to democratize these kinds of technologies so that more employees can take advantage of them. And does that mean expanding the health care requirement, the paid leave policies that expire under current legislation in December? Yeah, look, I, I have a letter I'm working on with a bunch of public health officials, a bipartisan group, making recommendations to Congress to look at ways to provide um, paid sick leave to people who have diagnosed COVID so that they can self-isolate at home, as well as um, provide uh, money to people who are self-isolating at home awaiting a test result. You don't want getting a positive COVID-19 test result to be punitive. You don't want to tell people they have to self-isolate at home and, oh, by the way, they're going to lose wages and they're going to incur other expenses and hardships. So while you don't want to make it um, something that's fin a financial inducement to get coronavirus, you also don't want to make it punitive. And we have to balance that. We have to find that happy medium. And that means, I think, providing for lost wages and maybe providing a stipend, a small stipend to people, similar to what we do when they serve on jury duty, because there are costs that people are going to incur by self-isolating at home if they have a coronavirus illness. And as a society, we're going to want them to do that. That's how we're going to stop the spread. And very quickly, uh, how close are we to some kind of treatment or vaccine? And is China going to beat us there? There's a risk that China may get to a vaccine first. I don't think their adenoviral vector vaccine is very good, but they may get it to the market before we do. I think that is a concern. In terms of the vaccine here in the United States, we may have hundreds of thousands of doses available in the fall for testing. And if there is an outbreak, a big outbreak in an American city, I think it would be made available in the city in some, under some kind of protocol. So we would have it available in the setting of an outbreak, certainly not a national epidemic like we have right now. We may have one or more treatments by the fall. I don't think anyone's going to be a home run, but we may have something that can help. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you very much, as always, for your insight. Thanks a lot. We'll be right back with a look at the financial fallout from the coronavirus crisis. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We turn now to the economy and the continued financial fallout from the coronavirus. Suzanne Clark is the president of the Chamber of Commerce based here in Washington. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the volume, the amount of demand that small businesses had for emergency aid was so great that that $350 billion fund ran out on Thursday. We know from congressional leaders and the Treasury that they expect some kind of deal to replenish those funds. Is $250 billion enough? Well, we know that the small businesses out there are really hurting, and every hour and day that goes by without this assistance is really hurting them. And so we know that it's a really good start. And it's part of why we're working on a path forward on how you reopen businesses so that they can get back in some kind of gradual, phased-in way to work. So you do believe this $250 billion package will be approved this week, but 
I mean, a senior Fed official I spoke to this week said even the 250 on top of the 350 billion may not be enough because small businesses are in such acute pain and they make up such an important part of the U.S. economy. I mean, what's the timeline? I think the $250 billion is just another really important step on getting aid to the front lines as fast as possible. I do think it will get done this week, and the Chamber is delighted about that. What we really believe, though, to your point, is that these businesses and getting paychecks in the hands of Americans at some point requires getting back to work, of course, safely and sustainably when the public health officials say it's okay to do so. But when it comes to your members... How many of them had a hard time getting access to this money? Because CBS, in our reporting at this network, has found that many of the smaller businesses didn't get their applications through. We know that there was great demand because we know that there's great pain out there. We know that the banks, you know, this didn't make different banking regulations go away. So they had to deal with people they knew did business with. They had to deal with anti-money laundering rules, et cetera. So it was easier to do business with people that they knew. But we know now, as other non-traditional lenders get into the space, that they are ready to give the money and make it easier for small businesses to access as soon as that fund is replenished. Do you expect it to function better this time? Yes. Uh, The chamber released a poll showing at the beginning of April that one out of 10 members say they are less than one month away from permanently going out of business. What are your projections on bankruptcies and closures? It's really terrifying, these numbers. You had something like 50 percent of small businesses say that they were eight weeks away from closing forever. And so that's why these bridge programs are so important, but also why it's so important that we start to think about reopening in a gradual, phased-in way. We know that certain regions were hit harder than others, but we also know that there were certain regions that weren't hit as hard. We know that certain sectors, as Dr. Gottlieb just said, will have a harder time coming back, but there are other sectors that may be able to open. So the faster that we can get people back to work, we know what this job means to a community and to a family, and the faster we can get paychecks into their hands and get these businesses to open, the sharper and faster the recovery will be. What is the cost to a small business owner of trying to provide, and what is the legal expectation for that small business owner to try to provide testing or uh, protective equipment to their employees? Are you telling businesses to go ask their governors and mayors, or is that the business owner's job? That's exactly where we're doing our work. So the Chamber's Path Forward is all about gathering all of the questions and concerns that small, medium, and large businesses across the country have and helping develop a framework for policymakers and businesses so that when we get the yellow light, the proceed with caution light to reopen, they're ready. And you're right that that's part tracing and testing, but it's also part which equipment and how do you train. And then there's the best practices and guidelines. Are we asking employers to check whether you've been tested? Are we creating some kind of immune registry? There are a lot of regulatory and legal questions here that small business owners and big business owners want to know. There's no playbook for this. It's unprecedented. And they want to know if they take a risk in an imperfect information situation that they're going to be protected. And who is answering those questions? Is that the federal government? It's really a coordinated approach. You have federal guidelines that then have to be implemented on a state and local level because the conditions vary so much by zip code. Um, All right. Well, uh, very quickly before we leave, can I get you to clarify, do you expect the requirement to provide health care coverage, paid leave, uh, to happen because it currently expires in December? I don't know what the Congress will end up deciding. What I expect is that companies and communities are going to do the right thing by their people. We don't want sick people in the workplace. We can't get back to work until we get back to health. And I expect that the government and business will work together to figure that out. A lot of big questions still unanswered. Thank you very much, Suzanne Clark. Thank you. We will be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Of the populations most vulnerable to a COVID-19 outbreak, the world's 26 million refugees are at the top of that list. They often live in close quarters with access to only basic health and sanitation facilities. An outbreak of the virus could be devastating. The country of Jordan is home to at least three and a half million refugees and also the world's largest Syrian refugee camp. We are joined now by the King of Jordan, His Majesty, King Abdullah II. Good morning to you, Your Majesty. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, social distancing is next to impossible for, for refugees. Uh, how do you plan it to limit the spread? Well, uh, we uh, acted uh, uh, quite early on, um, and that helped us uh, flatten the curve uh, quite, uh, quite well. Um, and uh, we created, obviously, um, uh, some uh, tough measures in, in lockdown and, and, and quarantines that are um, uh, over the whole country, although we're in the process of uh, opening that up uh, slightly. The challenge with refugees, obviously, they're about 20% of our population. Uh, the majority are not in refugee camps, so uh, that is a challenge. But we um, um, sort of uh, treat every um, person inside of our borders, whether you're a Jordanian citizen or a refugee, uh, in the same manner. Uh, excessive testing uh, has helped us um, figure out what our challenges are, but uh, definitely uh, a country with a 20% increase of its uh, population through refugees, it's a major challenge as we go into the future. So uh, given that not all refugees live in camps, what kind of sense do you have of the degree to which the virus has penetrated that community? Well, um, again, we, we do uh, random and targeted testing uh, throughout the whole country. Refugee camps, because obviously people are much closer together in living conditions, uh, was something that we looked at earlier on. So there is a, a lot of um, testing. The uh, lockdown on the quarantine has helped um, uh, Jordan uh, uh, sort of flatten the curve quite quickly. The cases that we've had over the past week are under the under 10 people uh, every day. We average uh, 15, uh, give or take, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a weekly basis. Uh, so it seems that we're, we've got things under control and within the capabilities of our medical um, and uh, health establishments. Uh, but again, uh, there's always that question out there, is there a gap in society that you don't know uh, of? And so, uh, again, testing at a massive scale is is how we're relying on hopefully getting the right figures. Yeah, this pandemic is global, and the U.N. has called for a global response. But, frankly, Europe is struggling with this virus. The United States is. The U.S. president just cut funding, or froze it at least, to the World Health Organization. Who do you see actually leading a global response? Well, I, I think uh, this is a, a challenge that uh, took everybody uh, by surprise by uh, the impact and the magnitude of, uh, of this pandemic. Um, and I think the question is, uh, nobody is going to get a perfect score on this issue. Each country has different ways of handling it, um, uh, nuances of their societies and, and what their country faces. The question that I think you're alluding to is, where are we four months, six months, a year from now? Do we understand that this is um, a new world that we're living in? Um, this is a, a disease that, uh, a virus that crosses uh, borders. It's an invisible enemy. Uh, it'll target uh, developed countries, undeveloped countries, whatever your uh, religion, creed, um, color, or race. Um, uh, unless we work together, we will not be able to overcome this in the way that we need to. So our enemies of yesterday or, or those that were not friendly countries yesterday, uh, whether we like it or not, are our partners today. And I think the quicker we as leaders and um, politicians figure that out, the quicker we can bring this under control, because it's not just COVID-19 that we're worried about, is what does it bring for us on the world in 2021, 22, 23? Um, are we going to be prepared for the next wave of this? And that can only happen if we reach out to each other. Well, the IMF has said that if countries don't handle this right, that the virus could destabilize countries, in particular because of the economic strain. Are you worried about instability in Jordan? Are you worried that this could be exploited? by extremist groups? Well, I think all over the world, extremist groups and the usual suspects will obviously try and take advantage of that. We as a country that have um, come out of the, uh, the regional shocks of, of wars with the massive surge of refugees that we've had, uh, plus being a poor country on a very strict program with the IMF um, in trying to get the economy back and running, obviously this is a major concern. Uh, having said that, we have seen uh, areas of our uh, society where actually uh, we can um, uh, be um, supporters for the region. 
Um, but it's, I think, a challenge that all countries are facing of whether or not we get the economics right. So here's the risk. I mean, uh, obviously, we are now slowly, gradually opening up, understanding that it could really uh, move us back a couple of paces. Uh, but I think with this type of challenge, we've got to be very light on our feet. So uh, mistakes, I keep saying, uh, that are made yesterday, as long as we get them right today um, and, and keep uh, our, our institutions and our people flexible enough to be able to, to, to take on the challenges that we may not have foreseen uh, tomorrow. Have you spoken to the president of China or asked him for help? No, um, I, I have not. Uh, I have been in touch with uh, leaders around the world. Uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the leader uh, and my dear friend in the United Arab Emirates, he got in touch with me and asked what uh, could he do to help. And again, we had a problem with test kits. Uh, Jack Ma uh, of Alibaba gave us 100,000 test kits that almost tripled our capability uh, overnight. Many individuals and countries have helped us, as we have in turn uh, been helping them. And this is, I think, um, uh, the flavor I hope that people will get. I mean, to be <laughs> really honest, uh, Mother Nature gave us a big kick up the backside. And are we smart enough as, as a race and as a people to understand uh, that we've got to get it right? And, and do we now serve humanity in the right way uh, to be able to make sure that everybody is looked after? Because uh, those that have not um, uh, are going to suffer as much as those that have and if we don't reach out to those that are in need, even though we may have limited resources, um, it is, um, at this stage, doing what's right to help all of us because we're all in the same boat. Your Majesty, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Margaret. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Finally today, with the nation's governors becoming familiar faces to all of us, regardless of where we live, thanks to technology, we asked 60 Minutes correspondent John Dickerson for his thoughts on the crucial role they're playing in this crisis. While the medical laboratories search for a coronavirus cure, the laboratories of democracy are also hard at work. That's the phrase Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis used to describe the 50 American states. The political scientists in these laboratories are the governors, facing the toughest issues of the virus— from overburdened hospitals and equipment shortages. Our first responders, our healthcare workers, everybody deserves to have that gear. And I'm telling you, we're killing ourselves trying to make it happen. To exploding unemployment. Our economic condition is uncertain, but the state of our character has never been stronger. In their response, they have reminded us what leadership looks like where its limits are, and how generously citizens respond to grace under pressure. In a crisis when there is no end date, people crave specificity and plain speaking, even if it's tough medicine. What's the penalty for a young person going out to a restaurant or hanging in a social get-together? And it's true, the penalty is you might kill your grandparent. Voters in a state may know their governor, but usually the rest of the country only tunes in when a disaster hits. Then the governor is the one in the windbreaker standing behind the president surveying the damage. Now governors are center stage because the disaster in one state is the disaster facing every state. All these patients here. When governors remind their constituents, they also remind the country that we are all connected. We have to pull together, and ultimately it's going to be the small acts, what seems small, of each and every American that truly is going to make all the difference in the world. In an age of finger-pointing, blame-shifting, and spin, it can be bracing to simply hear a leader take responsibility. If you are upset by what we have done, be upset at me. My judgment is do whatever is necessary to contain this virus, and then we will manage the consequences afterwards. The old expression, the buck stops on my desk, the buck stops on my desk. Your local mayor did not close your restaurants, your bars, your gyms, or your schools. I did. 
I did. Voters notice when leaders step up. Polls show that the governors in the states of California, New York, Ohio, and Arkansas have approval ratings in the 70s and 80s. State laboratories also show the limits of what works. In Michigan, Governor Whitmer has rallied the public and won its approval, but recent strict stay-at-home orders caused a backlash, which in its responsible form reminded us that leaders can only do so much through coercion. Leaders identify a need, make a plan, and follow through. So this week, three sets of regional governors formed groups to think through the next phase in COVID-19 response that might boost economic output, relying on evidence, consultation, and persuasion. There's much work ahead, because even when the medical laboratories find a solution, these laboratories will have to keep working. And we'll keep working, too. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Suzanne Clark, and His Majesty, King Abdullah II of Jordan. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.